You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Man seldom sees or hears the like of this but once in a lifetime, and those that saw and heard this infernal crash and witnessed the havoc made by the shrieking, howling missiles of death as they plowed the earth and tore the trees will never forget it. It seemed that death was in every foot of space, and safety was only in flight, but none of the men did that. To know the tension of mind under fire like that, it must be experienced. It cannot be told in words. For two long hours this pandemonium was kept up, and then, as suddenly as it commenced, it ceased. Lieutenant John H. Lewis, 9th Virginia Infantry, Armistead's Brigade, Pickett's Division, Army of Northern Virginia. Hey everyone, welcome to the 375th episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. At 2 p.m. on the afternoon of Friday, July 3rd, 1863, Professor Michael Jacobs of Pennsylvania College would record the temperature as 87 degrees, which would be the highest temperature he recorded in Gettysburg all that month. A slight south breeze began to stir the still, humid air and very slowly drifted the dense banks of powder smoke away from the battlefield. As the Confederate soldiers in Pickett's, Pettigrew's, and Trimble's divisions scrambled to their feet and formed battle lines, many were shaken by the losses they had sustained during the artillery bombardment, and they were also suffering from the heat and humidity. Lieutenant John Dooley of the 1st Virginia in Kemper's Brigade described the moment his men received the order to stand and dress ranks in preparation for the advance. Quote, We rise to our feet, but not all. There is a line of men still on the ground with their faces turned, men affected in four different ways. There are the gallant dead who will never charge again, the helpless wounded many of whom desire to share the fortunes of this charge, the men who have charged on many a battlefield, but who are now helpless from the heat of the sun, and the men in whom there is not sufficient courage to enable them to rise. 
Some are actually fainting from the heat and dread. They have fallen to the ground, overpowered by the suffocating heat and terrors of that hour. But despite the intense anxiety and unrelenting sun, there were still thousands of men, Virginians, North Carolinians, Alabamans, Tennesseans, and Mississippians, who rose to their feet at the command and formed ranks. In the nine brigades making up the attacking force, there were some 40 regiments and battalions, with each unit centered on its battle flag. As the companies in each unit dressed ranks, the men of the color guards stepped out the prescribed four paces to the front. Theirs was the post of honor, but it was also the post of danger. When the officers and men of his brigade had arranged themselves into a single line of two ranks, Louis Armistead walked to the color sergeant of the 53rd Virginia, the regiment of direction for the brigade, and asked, Sergeant, are you going to put those colors on the enemy's works today? Sergeant Leander Blackburn said, I will try, sir, and if mortal man can do it, it shall be done. No doubt impressed by Blackburn's answer, Armistead offered his flask to the sergeant, and in full view of the men in the watching ranks, the general and the sergeant shared a drink. Then Armistead walked twenty paces in front of his brigade, where he removed his hat and stuck it on the tip of his uplifted sword. Minutes earlier, he had told Garnett, The issue is with the Almighty, and we must leave it in his hands. If you visit the Gettysburg Battlefield today and stand at the Virginia Monument on Seminary Ridge, it's important to understand that no Confederate infantry actually advanced from that point at the beginning of Pickett's charge. That's because the rebel foot soldiers would start off their advance in two wings with a substantial gap of about 400 yards between them. Pickett's men comprised the right wing to the south, while Pettigrew's and Trimble's troops made up the left wing to the north. After the advance began, Pickett's men, as they marched toward Cemetery Ridge, were to slide to their left so as to close that gap between the two wings. Pickett's division, making up the right wing of the attacking force, was formed in two lines. On the left of the first line was Brigadier General Richard Garnett's brigade, with, from left to right, the 56th, 28th, 19th, 18th, and 8th Virginia. On the right of the first line was Brigadier General James Kemper's brigade, with the 3rd, 7th, 1st, 11th, and 24th Virginia. Behind Garnett and Kemper, though primarily in back of Garnett, was Brigadier General Lewis Armistead's brigade, with the 38th, 57th, 53rd, 9th, and 14th Virginia. Leaving two brigades behind to man the defenses of Richmond meant that Pickett's was the only Confederate division at Gettysburg comprised entirely of troops from the same state. These 15 Virginia regiments were veterans, but they had sat out or missed the Army of Northern Virginia's last two big battles at Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville. Even so, they had more combat experience than their commander. 
That's because George Pickett had been wounded at Gaines Mill during the Seven Days Battles, and so today would be the first time he had commanded troops in combat in more than a year. Although word had come down that all officers were to make the advance on foot, since mounted men would make particularly inviting targets during the charge, nevertheless, it seems that probably around 16 men in Pickett's division were on horseback. Most were couriers and aides, but commanding officers were among that number. For example, while Armistead advanced on foot, both Kemper and Garnett were mounted, as was George Pickett. Garnett, for one, wouldn't have been able to make the charge on foot. He had recently been kicked in the leg by a horse and was still hobbling around, barely able to walk, and in constant pain. But there was no way 45-year-old Dick Garnett would miss this charge. That's because there was a stain upon his honor, and he believed the only way to clear his name was by conspicuous bravery on the battlefield. You see, after Garnett found he and his men in a tough spot and ordered a retreat at the Battle of Kernstown in March 1862, Stonewall Jackson had ordered him relieved of command and brought up on charges. Well, almost everyone agreed Stonewall was being completely unreasonable and was unjustified in doing so. But unfortunately, Garnett never got the chance to clear his name. That August, the start of the campaign that would culminate in the Second Battle of Manassas meant that after only one day, his court-martial was suspended and was never reconvened. However, Robert E. Lee did order Stonewall to release Garnett from arrest, and by September, he had been reassigned to Pickett's division. Pickett's staff officer, Walter Harrison, wrote, quote, To the brave, proud, and sensitive spirit of Garnett, Kernstown was a cruel blow, the effects of which his heart was never relieved until its last throb at Gettysburg. He was ever thereafter anxious to expose himself, even unnecessarily, and to wipe out by some great distinction in action what he felt to be an unmerited slur upon his military reputation. On the afternoon of July 3rd, as Pickett's men advanced and marched through the Confederate gun line, Porter Alexander saw Garnett riding his horse Red Eye in front of his brigade. Alexander later said, I had served on the plains with him and Armistead, and now I saw him for the first time since Longstreet's Suffolk campaign. He saluted, and I mounted and rode with him while his brigade swept through our guns. However, the reunion was brief. After exchanging greetings and talking for a minute as they rode alongside one another, the two men parted, Porter Alexander to return to his cannon, and Dick Garnett to lead his brigade on toward Cemetery Ridge. Off to the left of, or north of, Pickett's men, the six brigades under Pettigrew and Trimble also readied for the charge. Here, the left wing of the attacking force had Pettigrew's four brigades up front, with two of Trimble's brigades behind them. Pettigrew's division is actually Harry Heath's command, but with Heath suffering from a head wound, it will be Johnston Pettigrew who will lead the division in the charge on July 3rd. 
As y'all will recall, this division had been in the thick of the fighting on the first day of the battle and suffered heavy casualties. On the right end of Pettigrew's line is Colonel Burkett Fry's brigade. This is Archer's brigade, but Archer was captured on July 1st and is now a guest of the Yankees. So Fry, of the 13th Alabama, is now in command. From left to right, Fry's brigade is composed of the 5th Alabama Battalion, 7th Tennessee, 14th Tennessee, 13th Alabama, and 1st Tennessee. To the left of Fry, Colonel James Marshall of the 52nd North Carolina is now leading Pettigrew's brigade, since Johnston Pettigrew has been elevated to division command. In line from left to right are the 11th, 26th, 47th, and 52nd North Carolina. Next in line was Brigadier General Joseph Davis's brigade, comprised of the 11th, 2nd, and 42nd Mississippi, and the 55th North Carolina. Then, on the left end of Pettigrew's line was Colonel John Brockenbrough's brigade, with the 55th, 47th, and 40th Virginia, and the 22nd Virginia Battalion. While both Davis's brigade and Brockenbrough's brigade are under the same commanders they had on July 1st, this is, in reality, not really much of a, of a benefit since both formations are disadvantaged by poor leadership, with Davis's only qualification for brigade command being the fact he's the Confederate president's nephew. And then there was Brockenbrough, who was described as dull and uninspiring. Forming up behind Pettigrew's line of battle were the two brigades which Trimble would be leading forward on this day. As we've mentioned previously on the podcast, it was only here on July 3rd that Robert E. Lee had put Major General Isaac Trimble in command of the mortally wounded Dorsey Penders Division, so that meant Trimble was entirely unknown to the officers and men he would be leading in the charge. Forming the right side of Trimble's line is the brigade led by the 34th North Carolina's Colonel William Lowrance. This is actually Alfred Scales' brigade, but Scales was wounded by a shell fragment on July 1st, while the brigade itself took heavy casualties that day, assaulting the Federal First Corps' position on Seminary Ridge. Here on July 3rd, the brigade formed into line with the 38th, 13th, 34th, 22nd, and 16th North Carolina from left to right. Then, forming the left side of Trimble's line is Brigadier General James Lane's brigade, which is relatively fresh since it has seen little action since arriving at Gettysburg. Lane's command is comprised of the 33rd, 18th, 28th, 37th, and 7th North Carolina. If, for a moment, we move our attention back up to the front line here, the formation on the far right side of Pettigrew's line of battle is Fry's brigade, meaning it's the formation in the first line closest to Pickett's division. Fry's brigade has been designated the unit of direction for the entire assault, making its advance of considerable importance, since all the other units taking part in the charge were to align themselves on it. Pettigrew instructed Burkett Fry to coordinate with Pickett, and as Fry and George Pickett were discussing the matter, 
they were joined by Dick Garnett, whose brigade formed Pickett's left. Fry later wrote that it was agreed between them that Garnett would align on his, that is, Fry's, brigade, and, quote, it was then understood that my command should be considered the center and that both divisions should align themselves by it. Fry's brigade being the unit of direction is important for two reasons. First, it would necessitate that slide to the left by Pickett's division that I mentioned a few minutes ago. This would close the gap between the two wings of the assault by bringing the left flank of Pickett's division up to connect to the right flank of Pettigrew's division. Second, with Fry's brigade being the unit of direction, it would advance straight ahead towards Cemetery Ridge. And marching straight ahead, that is due east, would take Fry's brigade right between Ziegler's Grove to the north and the Copse of Trees to the south. And at that spot between Ziegler's Grove and the Copse of Trees was the angle, the point along the federal line on Cemetery Ridge where the stone wall zigzags south, then west, then back south. So, with Fry's brigade as the unit of direction for the charge, that meant the angle became the target for the Confederate infantry assault. Pettigrew wasn't aware of the drama that unfolded between Porter Alexander and James Longstreet regarding the final decision to start the charge. Johnston Pettigrew remained with his division and knew it was time to go only when it became apparent that Pickett's men had stood up and were forming ranks. So, no one sent him a message, but Pettigrew nonetheless quickly gave the signal to his brigade commanders to get their men up and ready. As in Pickett's division, there were a number of soldiers who were overcome by the heat. According to a lieutenant in the 11th North Carolina, men were, quote, fainting all along the line before started on the charge. Soon enough, the order to start the advance was given. Pettigrew couldn't resist saying something to his old brigade. He reined up in front of it and said to Marshall, Now, Colonel, for the honor of the good old North State, forward. When the awful, booming cannon fire all but ceased, Professor Jacobs realized that it meant something else was about to happen. He took a small telescope along as he scrambled up to the attic of his home on Middle Street, which overlooked Seminary Ridge. As he watched the thousands of Confederate infantrymen in the distance dress their lines before starting their charge, Jacobs called down to his 18-year-old son, Michael, telling him, Quick, come, come. You can see now what in all your life you will never see again. Meanwhile, on Cemetery Ridge, all along the line of Hancock's 2nd Corps could be heard the cry, Here they come. Here comes the infantry. Lieutenant Frank Haskell of John Gibbon's staff was front and center of the Federal line and so had as good a view as anyone when the enemy foot soldiers hauled into view. He saw, quote, regiment after regiment and brigade after brigade move from the woods and rapidly take their places in the lines, forming the assault. Haskell continued, quote, 
More than half a mile their front extends. More than a thousand yards the dull gray masses deploy. Man touching man, rank pressing rank, and line supporting line. Their red flags wave. Their horsemen gallop up and down. The arms of 18,000 men, barrel and bayonet, gleam in the sun, a sloping forest of flashing steel. Right on they move, as with one soul, in perfect order, without impediment of ditch or wall, over ridge and slope, magnificent, grim, irresistible. Haskell noted that along the federal line, quote, all was orderly and still upon our crest, no noise and no confusion, end quote. Haskell noticed that the men, veterans of many battles, were sliding their cartridge boxes around to the front of their bodies for quicker access, and that officers were making sure their pistols were loose in their holsters. He said, quote, such preparation, little more, was needed. Haskell recorded that, quote, General John Gibbon rode down the lines, cool and calm, and in an unimpassioned voice he said to the men, Do not hurry, men, and fire too fast. Let them come up close before you fire, and then aim low and steadily. The lieutenant believed that, quote, the coolness of their general was reflected in the faces of the men. Gibbon's division formed the left half of the Union Center on Cemetery Ridge. The division was holding the line from the angle southward past the copse of trees for some 500 yards. All three of Gibbon's brigades had been engaged the previous day, July 2nd, and suffered accordingly, with the 1st Minnesota's 82% loss the most severe. All told, Gibbon would have perhaps 2,700 men to face Pickett's charge. Defending the angle was Brigadier General Alexander Webb's brigade, comprised of the 69th, 71st, 72nd, and 106th Pennsylvania. This was the Philadelphia Brigade, a veteran outfit, but it had been led for too long under a loose rein, which meant discipline had been lax, and so Gibbon had doubts about the brigade's reliability. For example, the evening before, Colonel Richard Smith of the 71st had backed away from the fight when sent over to help out at Culp's Hill. But still, Gibbon had high hopes that Webb was starting to turn things around in the brigade. However, July 3rd marked Alexander Webb's sixth day in command. Previously, he had served in staff positions, but nevertheless, Gibbon was pleased with what he had seen in these first few days, writing, quote, Webb has taken hold of his brigade with a will, comes down on them with a heavy hand, and will no doubt soon make a great improvement. July 3rd, therefore, promised to be a test for both Webb and his command. To add to Webb's challenge, he was missing, except for two companies on the skirmish line, the 106th Pennsylvania, which had been commandeered earlier by Otis Howard to brace the 11th Corps. This left Webb with barely 940 men. Webb posted the 69th Pennsylvania at the stone wall, leaving gaps right and left for the fire of Cushing's and Perrin's batteries. His other regiments formed a second line to the rear. To Webb's left was Colonel Norman Hall's brigade, 
forming the center of Gibbon's position. Hall was a 26-year-old West Pointer who had headed the brigade since Antietam, and his troops reflected his calm competence. In the front line, Hall put the 59th New York, 7th Michigan, and 20th Massachusetts. In a second line, in support, were the 42nd New York and 19th Massachusetts. Hall's men had thrown up an entrenchment of sorts. Captain Henry Abbott of the 20th Massachusetts explained how, quote, The thin line of our division was very well shielded by a little rut they lay in, and in front of our brigade by a little pit, just one foot deep and one foot high, thrown up hastily by one shovel. Hall's troops had scraped out this shallow trench where the stone wall ended, then piled up a small parapet of dirt and fence rails in front of it. It was decidedly unimposing, but the men gratefully sheltered behind it during the bombardment and would find it handy in the fight to come. The 3rd of Gibbon's brigades, led by Brigadier General William Harrow, formed the left of the divisional line. Harrow, like Webb, was commanding a brigade for the first time. He positioned all four of his regiments, the 1st Minnesota, 82nd New York, 15th Massachusetts, and 19th Maine in the front line. Because of casualties suffered on July 2nd, all of Harrow's regiments, except the 19th Maine, were now led by new commanders. Positioned in support of Harrow's brigade were two regiments from the 1st Corps that had come to plug a hole in the 2nd Corps line late on July 2nd the 80th New York, and the nine-month 151st Pennsylvania had seen heavy fighting on July 1st on Seminary Ridge and were now about to be thrown into the breach once again, this time on Cemetery Ridge. This force was commanded by the 80th New York's Colonel Theodore Gates. On Thursday, the 2nd Corps Division, led by John Caldwell, had been ordered to the left to bail out the 3rd Corps, and there it remained, out of the picture, as far as we're concerned. So that meant that on July 3rd, the 2nd Corps' left flank, south of Gibbon's position, was guarded by Brigadier General George Stannard's Vermont Brigade. Stannard's Brigade was actually attached to the 1st Corps, after belatedly being sent to join the Army of the Potomac, from the Department of Washington. These nine-month Vermont regiments had already served eight months or so of their enlistment, quietly enough, in the Washington defenses. And on their march toward Gettysburg, Stannard, for one, was doubtful about their enthusiasm to serve in battle. On the march north from the capital, he noted in his diary how, quote, they count their time in days, Consequently, they do not have any heart in the work. Officers as little as the men. Two of Stannard's five regiments had been assigned to guard wagons, so that left the 13th, 14th, and 16th Vermont to demonstrate on July 3rd whether their hearts were, in fact, in the work. Well, be that as it may, the 1st Corps troops of Gates and Stannard added some 2,700 much-needed men to the defenses of the Federal Center on Cemetery Ridge. (music) 
North of Gibbon's position, Brigadier General Alexander Hayes' division formed the right half of the Union Center on Cemetery Ridge. The fierce and combative Hayes was proud to be a Pennsylvanian and fought at Gettysburg with a special intensity. He later explained, I was fighting for my native state, and before I went in, I thought of those at home I so dearly love. If Gettysburg was lost, all was lost for them. On July 3rd, Hayes had his men gather up all the discarded muskets they could find and clean and load them. This kept the men busy right through the worst of the cannonade, and some men had as many as four or six loaded rifles at hand when the Confederate infantry started their charge. Meanwhile, Hayes, primed and in his element, continued to ride up and down his line, encouraging his men. He told them to hold their fire until the rebels reached the Emmitsburg Road, which, slanting across the front of his line, lay some 200 yards away, and then aim low. Hayes promised, Now, boys, you will see some fun. Hayes didn't hold back any troops as a reserve. Instead, he pushed his two brigades right up to the stone wall in their front, so that in some places they were four ranks deep. On the right were the men of Colonel Thomas Smith's brigade, comprised of the 14th Connecticut, 1st Delaware, 12th New Jersey, and 108th New York. On the left were the 39th, 111th, 125th, and 126th New York, the so-called Harper's Ferry Cowards, who in the ferocious fighting on July 2nd had won a long way toward redeeming their tarnished reputation. Today, Colonel Eliakim Sherrill of the 126th was commanding the brigade, replacing the slain George Willard. By packing his regiments together tightly up at the stone wall, Hayes' idea was to mass as much firepower as possible on the front line in order to break up the enemy's charge with killing volleys of musketry before the rebel infantry could reach him, that is, before any reserve would even be needed. Of his 3rd Brigade, led by Samuel Carroll, Hayes had retained only the 8th Ohio, since the brigade's other regiments had been commandeered by Otis Howard to bolster the 11th Corps position on Cemetery Hill. The previous day, Hayes had posted the 8th out in front and to the right of the main line, where the Ohioans supported the skirmishers in front of Hayes' position, and there they remained on July 3rd. Alexander Hayes' two brigades here, plus the 8th Ohio, came to just over 2,500 men. And then there were the 2nd Corps batteries that had been within ground zero during the Confederate bombardment. All had been affected to varying degrees by the enemy cannon fire, with George Woodruff's posted in Ziegler's Grove being the least disrupted. There was some slight damage from falling tree limbs and the loss of a few horses, but after some minor cleanup, Woodruff's six guns were ready for action. However, William Arnold's battery, lacking the cover enjoyed by Woodruff's men, was badly battered. Four of the guns were withdrawn, while a fifth disabled one was left in place. The last piece, with all the battery's remaining ammunition, was pushed up close to the stone wall. Alonzo Cushing's six-gun battery had also taken a terrible pounding, 
Several caissons had been exploded, and so many men were lost to the unrelenting enemy cannon fire that infantry volunteers from nearby units had to help serve the guns. Two cannon were hit and disabled, then two more were put out of action. A fragment of a shell so cruelly injured Private Arsenal Griffin that he pleaded for someone to put him out of his misery. Finally, he put a pistol to his head, called out, Goodbye, boys, and shot himself. Still, the grimly determined Cushing remained undaunted. When Alexander Webb rode over to check on the battery before the Confederate infantry started forward, the 22-year-old Cushing, who was dreadfully wounded in the shoulder and, well, in his private parts, said he thought it would be best if he moved his two remaining guns right down to the stone wall and Webb told him to do so. The shock and bleeding from Cushing's wounds caused extreme nausea and pain, yet he refused to leave his post. When his senior sergeant suggested he go to the rear, Cushing replied that he was going to stay and fight it out or die in the attempt. Next in line after Cushing's was the 1st Rhode Island Light Artillery Battery B. The unit had lost its commander, Lieutenant T. Fred Brown, and 22 other men on July 2nd. Today, the battery was commanded by Lieutenant Walter Perrin, and it was in bad shape. Two limbers had exploded, 30 battery horses had fallen, and three of the six guns were knocked out. Henry Hunt ordered Perrin to pull the battery out of line and head for the rear. The last in this set was Captain James Rorty's New York battery. It shared much the same fate as Cushing's and Perrin's outfits. By the time the enemy shellfire lifted, Rorty was dead, and two of his four guns were disabled. So many of the battery's gunners went down that the other two cannon remained in service only because some Vermont and Massachusetts infantrymen were drafted to help serve the pieces. When Perrin's battery was pulled out of the line at Hunt's order, it was replaced by Andrew Cowan's New York battery, which came up from the south at a gallop. The lead crew raced past the copse of trees and unlimbered north of it, near Cushing's two remaining pieces, while Cowan's five other guns deployed just south of the copse of trees. The five Second Corps batteries here, near the angle and the copse of trees, had been the main targets of the rebel cannonade. These batteries, especially Rorty's, Perrin's, Cushing's, and Arnold's, were at the center of the storm and suffered accordingly. They were torn apart and suffered appalling casualties. There can be no question that the hard-hit Federal Second Corps gunners earned their pay this day. However, as the rebel infantry started their advance, those cannon that remained in line had already used up their long-range shells dueling with enemy batteries, so there was nothing for them to do now except load with canister and wait. As y'all will recall, canister is that deadly effective anti-personnel ammunition that essentially turns a Civil War cannon into a giant shotgun. But it's only used as a last resort, at close range, so once the Federal guns loaded with canister, all they could do was wait wait until the charge of the enemy infantry carried them closer to Cemetery Ridge. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? 
Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. If I should live for a hundred years, I shall never forget that moment or the command as given by General Louis A. Armistead on that day. He was an old army officer and was possessed of a very loud voice, which could be heard by the whole brigade being near my regiment. He gave the command in words as follows. Attention, 2nd Battalion, Battalion of Direction Forward, Guide Center, March. He turned, placed himself about 20 paces in front of his brigade, and took the lead. After moving, he placed his hat on the point of his sword and held it above his head in front of him. Lieutenant John Lewis, 9th Virginia Infantry, Armistead's Brigade, Pickett's Division, Army of Northern Virginia. As Pickett's and Pettigrew's battle lines started forward, their formations opened so the units could sift through the now quiet Rebel gun line. One of Pickett's men later remembered how the gunners, quote, raised their hats and cheered us on our way. After passing through the guns, the Confederate infantry reformed their lines and moved forward with almost parade ground precision. It was a grand, magnificent sight. Even the watching Federals across the way couldn't help but admire the martial display and marvel at the sheer audacity of the attack. Those long lines of butternut and gray were heading directly toward Cemetery Ridge, across nearly three-quarters of a mile of open, rolling ground. On day three of the Battle of Gettysburg, it had, it seemed, all come down to this. From the right flank of Pickett's division up to the left of Pettigrew's division, including the gap between the wings, the leading line of Confederate infantry probably stretched about 2,000 yards, or just over a mile. Marching at common time, or 90 steps a minute, each rebel foot soldier would cover approximately 225 feet every 60 seconds. Fences would obstruct their way and slow them down, and they might stop in the momentary protection of the rolling ground to dress their lines before continuing, but still, they could cover the distance to the federal position on Cemetery Ridge in perhaps 20 minutes. Captain John Cook in the 80th New York said, quote, 
no one who saw them could help admiring the steadiness with which they came on. To Cook, the Confederate infantry came on, looking like, quote, the shadow of a cloud seen from a distance as it sweeps across a sunny field. Federal Artillery Chief Henry Hunt had been expecting this, but he was nevertheless in awe of Lee's audacity. Hunt admitted, quote, the Confederate approach was magnificent and excited our admiration. In Hayes' division, in one of Sherrill's regiments at the Stone Wall in front of Ziegler's Grove, a private in the 125th New York confided in his diary, Here we waited in almost breathless suspense for the enemy who was moving toward us like a vast avalanche. As they watched the Confederate infantry start their advance, the minds of some Federals went back eight months to December 1862 and the series of bloody, futile assaults they had made against a seemingly impregnable Confederate defensive position at Marie's Heights. Now, however, the men in blue waiting on Cemetery Ridge were the ones that were going to be dishing out the punishment, and they relished the thought. Captain Henry Abbott of the 20th Massachusetts said, quote, The moment I saw them, I knew we should give them Fredericksburg. So did everybody. Across the way, a few men in Pickett's division let loose with the rebel yell early in the charge. Usually, this distinctive battle cry inspired the troops to pick up the pace and close with the enemy. But now, because of the tension and excitement, they had started it too soon. They couldn't pick up the pace so far out and couldn't sustain the shout, so they fell into grim silence. The alignment was easy enough to keep in this early phase of the advance. With Garnett and Kemper up front, and Armistead about a hundred paces behind Garnett, Pickett's three brigades maintained their pace and their relationship to one another, even though they crossed a rail fence soon after passing the artillery. The first part of the charge, during which the division marched about a hundred yards past the Confederate gun line, was like a parade ground maneuver, because there was little incoming Federal cannon fire. Meanwhile, just to the north, after Pettigrew's men had passed beyond the Confederate gun line, at least a few of the rebel cannon continued to fire over the heads of the advancing infantry. As if to let us know we had friends in the rear, thought one man in the 26th North Carolina. However, here, unlike with Pickett's three brigades, there were significant problems of alignment with Pettigrew's units from the very start of the charge. To begin with, only two of Pettigrew's brigades started off together. Right. Davis's brigade of Mississippians missed the signal to begin the advance, and so started some minutes later than Fry and Marshall. Exactly why this happened was never explained. Johnston Pettigrew had taken great pains before the assault to see that his division would move out together, but despite this, neither Davis's Mississippians nor Brockenbrough's Virginians emerged from the tree line atop Seminary Ridge when Fry and Marshall started their advance. To Davis's credit, when he realized what was happening, he got his men up and moving quickly, and the Mississippians came rushing out of the tree line. Pettigrew had sent one of his staff officers, Lieutenant Lewis Young, back to fetch the Mississippians. 
But when this proved unnecessary, Young returned and asked if he ought to go get Brockenbra moving. Pettigrew said no, that the brigade, quote, might follow, and if it failed to do so, it would not matter. Young explained afterward that Brockenbra's brigade was a small unit, quote, that had suffered from frequent change of commanders and had been so badly handled that it was in a chronic state of demoralization and that it was not to be relied upon. It was of virtually no value in a fight. And so you have the unusual situation where here is an attack where every man counted But yet a division commander dismissed the value of one of his four brigades, as if saying Brockenbra's participation was more trouble than it was worth. Well, at any rate, Brockenbra's command would start a few minutes later, but by that time it had given up the possibility of connecting with Davis. And so, essentially, Brockenbra's Virginians would conduct their own poorly coordinated and lightly pressed attack. Meanwhile, Joe Davis was finding it hard to make a firm connection with Marshall on his right due to his late start, and so what ended up happening was that while Davis's Mississippians would conduct a vigorous attack, it was only loosely coordinated to the movements of the rest of the division. So, bottom line, Pettigrew therefore conducted the charge with only two of his four brigades well in hand. To make matters worse, Johnston Pettigrew not only failed to have his entire division conduct the attack in a coordinated manner, but he also had to worry about that yawning gap on his right between him and Pickett. The situation was complicated by the fact that, in some astonishingly sloppy Confederate staff work, no one informed Pettigrew that the infantry attack was starting so his only indication of what was happening was when he saw that Pickett's troops were forming up and beginning their advance. That meant the two wings of the charge started off out of sync with one another in both time and distance. Private Randolph Shotwell of the 8th Virginia, who was on Garnett's skirmish line and therefore in a good position to see what was going on over yonder on the northern half of the battlefield, thought Pettigrew didn't get started until Pickett's troops had already crossed a third of the distance to Cemetery Ridge. In other words, Pickett's men may have already crossed about a third of the distance to the enemy position before Pettigrew even got underway. It was almost certainly only because Pickett was slowed down by trying to close the gap between them, first by sliding to his left and then by the subsequent sharp left oblique, that Pettigrew had a chance to catch up with him by the time both commands were crossing the Emmitsburg Road. Isaac Trimble later said that, in hindsight, Pettigrew probably should have started off a good 15 minutes before Pickett in order to ensure better coordination. And speaking of Trimble, his two brigades, under Lowrance and Lane, had no difficulties and stepped off steadily about 150 yards behind Fry and Marshall. James Lane said that his Tar Heels, quote, never moved forward more handsomely.
After the Confederate infantry had passed through the Rebel gun line, moving off toward Cemetery Ridge, Porter Alexander began to ride along the line, visiting each battery, to round up pieces to send forward to support the charge. As you guys will recall, a key component of Lee's plan for the Confederate artillery was not only the bombardment, but that batteries would then also move forward with the rebel infantry to provide covering fire all the way to Cemetery Ridge. So now Porter Alexander sought to put that part of the plan into motion. About this hurried inspection of the guns in each battery, he would later say, quote, If it had enough long-range projectiles left to give some 15 shots, I ordered it to limber up and move forward after the storming column. Those guns with fewer than 15 rounds of long-range ammunition were ordered to wait until the rebel foot soldiers were well across the open fields and then to fire their remaining shells over the heads of the advancing infantry. The longer-than-anticipated bombardment had all but emptied many caissons, and it appears that Alexander was only able to round up perhaps 18 guns to move forward behind the rebel infantry. He hoped that his opposite number on the other flank was having better luck, but as it turned out, Colonel R. Lindsey Walker, the artillery chief of A.P. Hill's Corps, never even tried to implement this part of Lee's plan. That meant that, for whatever reason, no guns attached to Hill's Corps advanced with the rebel infantry. And so, this important element of Robert E. Lee's plan for the charge, this forward support scheme, would therefore be implemented not at all on the left wing, and only on a small scale on the right. But even on the right, after Alexander got some pieces moving forward, what happened next is unclear. Later on, he would never describe in detail the actions of the next few minutes. However, it's apparent from the few accounts that do exist that Porter Alexander was never able to coordinate the fire of that handful of guns, which is not really surprising since there had been no real planning beforehand for this part of the plan, that is, for this tactical forward artillery support. And now there was little time to improvise on the fly since events were proceeding at a rapid clip with the rebel infantry. Exactly. And not only was the charge moving forward quickly, but the Federal artillery was back in action. Alexander later said, quote, Meanwhile, the infantry had no sooner come out on the plain than all the enemy's line, which had been nearly silent, broke out again with all its batteries. When the Federal artillery opened a blistering fire on the advancing Confederate foot soldiers, Porter Alexander must have realized, with a sinking heart, that he had gambled and lost in assuming that the enemy batteries had been suppressed or withdrawn. Instead, now, he said, quote, a storm of shell began bursting over and among our infantry. Lieutenant Colonel Raleigh Martin of the 53rd Virginia in Armistead's brigade described the steady, quote-unquote, tramp-tramp sound the men made as they marched through the tall grass. 
But then, when the Yankee batteries opened fire, that sound was replaced by a terrible noise, as Martin said, quote, hissing, screaming shells break in their front, rear, in their flanks, all about them. The advancing lines of rebel infantry had covered barely 200 yards. Garnett and Kemper had already passed through the Confederate gun line, and Pettigrew's men had cleared the trees on Seminary Ridge. When the Federal gunners on Cemetery Hill, Cemetery Ridge, and Little Round Top unleashed their fire, and shot and shell went shrieking and howling toward the Confederate foot soldiers. This was the moment Henry Hunt had been waiting for. Almost as soon as the distant enemy battle lines tramped into view, the Federal batteries to north and south began targeting them with long-range fire. Only the hard-hit 2nd Corps batteries in the center of the line remained mostly silent. To the south, the Federal cannon on Little Round Top and those in McGilvery's gun line down on the southern portion of Cemetery Ridge targeted Pickett's brigades, while to the north, the 1st and 11th Corps batteries on Cemetery Hill began to blast Pettigrew's lines. Major Thomas Osborne, the 11th Corps artillery chief, declared, quote, From the very first minute, our guns created sad havoc in that line. The Federal gunners manning the smoothbore 12-pounder Napoleons would try to fire their solid shot so that the cannonball would hit the ground just in front of the Confederates, then bound or skip at waist or shoulder height through the enemy line, knocking men down. The shot, taking another bound and perhaps another, would continue to wreak havoc as long as someone was in its path. Such bounding fire was especially destructive when fired from an enfilade position or at an indirect angle, as then the cannonball would smash through the length of the enemy line of battle. The Federal artillerists manning rifled guns would fire case shot and percussion shells at long-range targets like the marching Confederate infantry. Percussion shells would explode on contact, that is, when they hit the ground, spewing fragments of iron in all directions. While case shot were those shells with fuses that would be cut by the gunners, so it would explode in the air, directly over the enemy soldiers, raining down deadly iron balls from above. Some of the most devastating Federal cannon fire came from McGilvery's powerful gun line, which had been mostly hidden from the rebels' view by the terrain. But that changed when the Confederates actually started their charge. Now these crews, manning over 30 guns, could fire obliquely at all three of Pickett's brigades. Freeman McGilvery reported, quote, We had a raking fire through all three of these lines. The execution must have been terrible, as it was over a level plain, and the effect was plain to be seen. To the north, on Cemetery Hill, where Osborne's 11th Corps batteries had been reinforced with guns from the 1st Corps and with pieces from the Army's artillery reserve, some 39 cannon were in position by the time Pettigrew's wing stepped off and started its advance. This cannon fire swept obliquely across the entire front of Pettigrew's four brigades. From atop Cemetery Hill, Major General Carl Schertz said, quote, Through our field glasses, we could distinctly see the gaps torn in their ranks and the ground dotted with dark spots, their dead and wounded. But the brave rebels promptly filled the gaps from behind or by closing up on their colors 
and they continued their onward march. A closer witness, Lieutenant Colonel Franklin Sawyer of the 8th Ohio, said that when the cannon fire from Cemetery Hill hit the rebels, quote, they were at once enveloped in a dense cloud of smoke and dust. Arms, heads, blankets, guns, and knapsacks were thrown and tossed into the clear air. A moan went up from the field, distinctly heard amid the storm of battle. Well, that moan Sawyer describes sends chills up and down your spine, right? But within the Confederate ranks, the destruction was simply appalling. Men dropped at almost every step, yet the rebel infantry pressed onward, continuing to dress ranks and fill the gaps that were torn in their lines. Captain John Dooley of the 1st Virginia said that when the Federal artillery opened up, quote, Now truly does the work of death begin. The line becomes unsteady because at every step a gap must be closed. Advancing on the right of Pickett's wing, Kemper's Virginians received the worst of the punishment from McGilvery's gun line and the pieces up on Little Round Top. So destructive was this fire that as exploding shells and bounding cannonballs lashed their ranks, seven men carrying the flag of the 7th Virginia fell, either killed or wounded, before the brigade even reached the Emmitsburg Road. Colonel Lewis Williams, commanding the 1st Virginia, was one of the officers who had been granted permission to ride a horse because of illness. As he followed the line on his mount, a shell struck him in the shoulder. With unbelievably bad luck, as he toppled from his horse, he fell onto his drawn sword. Mortally wounded, Williams suffered intense agony until his death four or five days later. The enfilading cannon fire hitting Kemper's ranks also raked Garnett's line. A lieutenant in the 56th Virginia described it as, quote, fearfully destructive. The 56th commander, Colonel William Stewart, fell mortally wounded from a piece of shell early in the advance and died on July 29th at his home in Stanton, Virginia. The regiment's entire color guard was also struck down by the federal cannon fire. Behind Garnett, Armistead's brigade was also hit. One Virginian stated that, quote, Now and then a man's hand or arm or leg would fly like feathers before the wind. Hmm. The casualties mounted with each step. The commander of the 53rd Virginia, Colonel William Aylett, was carried to the rear with a severe wound. When a shell exploded above the 53rd's Company K, it leveled every man in the unit as if they had been knocked down by the hand of a giant. Meanwhile, on the far left of the Confederate line, that is, at the north end of Pettigrew's line, things went poorly from the start. One of the most difficult tactical challenges facing Generals Lee and Longstreet was the question of how the flanks of the attacking force would be protected. Longstreet later claimed that he took special care with regard to troop placement prior to the attack. But if that's true, one has to wonder about the breakdowns that occurred on both the left and right sides of the attacking force. Here on the left, the selection of Colonel John Brockenbrough's troubled brigade of Virginians as the force advancing on Pettigrew's left flank 
with no supporting brigade coming up immediately behind Brockenbrough, was certainly questionable. This might have simply been unintentional, or the result of sloppy staff work, or a consequence of Longstreet's and A.P. Hill's failure to work together on July 3rd. But this failure to adequately support the left flank of the charge would have dire consequences. There had been problems in Brockenbrough's command in the past, and then on the first day of the battle here at Gettysburg, the brigade, by all accounts, put in a poor performance while fighting near the McPherson farm. Estimates of the brigade's strength on July 3rd vary from 200 to 600 men, but whatever the actual number, it was clearly well below average strength. Yet even under strength, and with its questionable leadership, it was Brockenbrough's brigade that was selected to cover the left flank of the charge. Prior to the charge, Brockenbrough split his brigade into two wings. The 55th and 47th Virginia on the left would be under the command of the 47th Colonel Robert Mayo, while Brockenbrough himself would lead the 40th Virginia and the 22nd Virginia Battalion on the brigade's right. No one knows why Brockenbrough split his brigade into two wings. It was a, um, curious choice, shall we say. Perhaps he thought it would help the brigade negotiate obstacles, like the Bliss Farm, as it moved forward. But no explanation was ever given, so we're left to wonder. At any rate, whatever Brockenbrough's intentions with this arrangement, it didn't work out so well for him. When Joe Davis's Mississippians, to Brockenbrough's right, stepped off, Brockenbrough's right wing moved out, but his left didn't budge. That's because Colonel Mayo was nowhere to be found. The 55th Virginia's commander, Colonel W.S. Christian, watched as the gap between the brigade's two wings rapidly increased and rode over to talk about the situation with another officer. Meanwhile, the 55th and 47th Virginia remained idle while the right wing advanced. It doesn't seem Mayo could be found, and finally it was suggested the left wing of the brigade should start forward anyway, which it finally did, but by then it was too late. Colonel Christian later said, quote, We were a long way behind and had to run to catch up with the rest of the brigade. Aside from the skirmishers out in front of the lines, the first Federal infantry to engage the attackers were the men of the 8th Ohio. As we said before, Alexander Hayes had posted the 8th along the Emmitsburg Road, out ahead and to the right of his main line, where they supported the division's skirmishers, not far from the smoldering ruins of the Bliss Barn. This put the 8th Ohio opposite the far northern end of the advancing enemy line, Confederate accounts from this part of the charge generally agree that they weren't hit with the heaviest Federal artillery fire until they were about halfway to Cemetery Ridge. Lieutenant Colonel Franklin Sawyer, commanding the 8th Ohio, could see over to his left the main line of Pettigrew's Confederates as it advanced steadily, braving the Federal cannon fire. But to his left front, Sawyer saw a smaller enemy force approaching. 
This enemy force was Brock and Bra's Virginians. Prior to this, Sawyer had already aggressively pushed his skirmish line out ahead to a fence at the far end of a cornfield to his front. Now, seeing his opportunity and seizing the moment, he led the main body of the regiment at the double quick through the cornfield to the skirmisher's fence line. From there, the men of the 8th Ohio opened a raking fire on the rebels, who were about a hundred yards away. There were barely 160 Buckeyes in this firing line, but so sudden and so unexpected was this blast of musketry that it stopped Brockenbrough's brigade in its tracks. The Virginians, already shaken by the incoming Federal artillery fire, and not in a great frame of mind to begin with due to the sketchy state of affairs in the brigade, now faltered and then retreated. Sawyer described his actions in his battle report, saying, quote, I advanced my reserve to the picket front, and as the rebel line came within about 100 yards, we poured in a well-directed fire, which broke the rebel line, and it soon fled in the wildest confusion. However, breaking Brockenbrough's Virginians didn't satisfy the feisty Sawyer. The Virginians' retreat exposed the left flank of the next-in-line rebel brigade, which was Joe Davis's Mississippians and North Carolinians, and Sawyer now wheeled the 8th Ohio, so it was facing due south and aligned behind a sturdy board fence. The Buckeyes were now squared up against the left end of Davis's advancing line as it crossed their front from right to left. Resting their muskets on the fence, the men of the 8th opened a deadly enfilading fire straight into the enemy flank. Sawyer would later say, quote, Our blood was up, and the men loaded and fired and yelled and howled at the passing column. This federal fire also struck the left flank of Lane's North Carolinians, one of Trimble's two trailing brigades. Although the 8th Ohio has traditionally received the lion's share of the credit for punishing Pettigrew's and Trimble's left, they were actually assisted by skirmishers from other units and portions of other regiments, including the 108th and 126th New York, 1st Massachusetts Sharpshooters, and also Woodruff's Battery. What all of that meant was that Longstreet's and A.P. Hill's inability or failure to protect the charge's northern flank reached a bloody climax along the front of the 8th Ohio. Meanwhile, to add to the Confederates' woes, on the other end of the attack, to the south, Pickett's right flank was also in trouble. As Pickett's division advanced, the problem of alignment with Pettigrew became obvious. The ominous 400-yard gap that had separated the two divisions before the start of the advance had to be closed. While Pettigrew had only to advance straight ahead toward Cemetery Ridge, Pickett had to move to his left and effect a junction with Pettigrew by the time the two divisions neared the Federal line. At first, orders filtered down the chain of command for Pickett's brigades and regiments to guide left as much as possible, that is, in effect, to slide in that direction while maintaining forward momentum. 
but the advance was too fast and the distance to the federal line on Cemetery Ridge too short to allow this easy solution to entirely close the gap to Pettigrew. By the time the Virginians neared the Emmitsburg Road, it became apparent that a sharp left oblique was necessary, especially for Kemper's brigade on the right of Pickett's first line. Instead of simply sliding to the left, this would require Kemper's line of battle to actually veer off in that direction, performing a maneuver like the swinging of a gate before squaring up again with the Federal line on Cemetery Ridge. Needless to say, such a drastic maneuver wouldn't be easy to pull off under battlefield conditions. On the Federal side, Kemper's brigade was initially headed straight for the portion of the line held by Stannard's Vermont brigade. As y'all will recall, these particular Yankees were the nine-month men who were not only new to the Army of the Potomac, but whose enlistments were almost up. As a result, as we said, George Stannard, for one, was doubtful about their enthusiasm to serve in a battle. On July 3rd, Stannard fought with his 13th, 14th, and 16th Vermont regiments, and as it turned out, he needn't have worried about the men's willingness to do their duty. As Kemper's Confederates approached from the west, passing to the south of the Kadori farm, they initially seemed headed straight towards Stannard's position. However, as the Vermonters opened fire, the rebels, in Stannard's words, quote, immediately changed direction by their left flank. Many of the Federals, then and afterward, believed it was the Vermonters' musket fire that had caused the steadily advancing rebels to veer off, but in reality, it just so happened that after passing to the south of the Kadori farm buildings, Kemper's brigade started its sharp left oblique. This radical change in direction took Kemper up toward Garnett, and also meant that Kemper's brigade of Virginians was now moving off to the Vermonters' right. With Kemper having thus veered north, Stannard sensed a flanking opportunity, and he decided to seize it much like Lieutenant Colonel Sawyer did with the 8th Ohio over at the other end of the battlefield. Stannard advanced his men and then turned them to face north so that they were now squarely on the right flank of Kemper's brigade and in a perfect position to hit the Virginians with the deadly enfilading fire. Captain Henry Owen of the 18th Virginia remembered the moment he saw the Vermonters making their flanking move. Quote, there appeared in the open field a line of men at right angle with our own, a long, dark mass, dressed in blue, and coming down at a double quick upon our unprotected right flank, with their muskets upon their right shoulder shift, their battle flags dancing and fluttering in the breeze created by their own rapid motion, and their burnished bayonets glistening above their heads like forest twigs covered with sheets of sparkling ice, when shaken by a blast. When the Yankees opened fire, it was with dreadful effect. Private Ralph Sturdivant of the 13th Vermont said, quote, We took deliberate aim and with a simultaneous flash and roar fired into the compact ranks of the desperate foe and again and again in quick succession until a dozen or more volleys had been discharged. We saw at every volley the gray uniforms fall quick and fast. 
Kemper got his two rightmost regiments turned to deal with the threat posed by the Vermonters. That meant the 24th and 11th Virginia eventually wound up facing almost due south, while the rest of the brigade continued moving off. Although so hot was the fire from Stannard's men that three companies from the 8th Virginia, Garnett's rightmost regiment, also were forced to peel off and face south. But the bottom line is that all of these Confederates who were forced to turn and deal with the threat posed by Stannard's flanking maneuver were therefore not available to continue on and take part in the final rush toward the Federal line on Cemetery Ridge. Unlike up on Pettigrew's left, at least here on the southern part of the battlefield, there was an attempt to cover Pickett's right flank, but it proved to be too little too late. What happened here with the participation of Wilcox's and Lang's brigades in the charge is often forgotten or glossed over, but their involvement was really no less than that of Pickett's, Pettigrew's, and Trimble's men, and so we think their actions here are worth talking about. Wilcox's Alabamans and Lang's Floridians were part of Richard Anderson's division in A.P. Hill's Corps. They were already positioned well forward on July 3rd in support of Porter Alexander's gun line, and since they were on Pickett's right, that meant that Kemper's brigade, at the start of the charge, actually had to march through Wilcox's and Lang's lines. As Kemper's Virginians passed through their lines, the Alabamans and Floridians, who had attacked Cemetery Ridge the day before, shouted warnings. Boys, that's a hot place. We were there yesterday. Dick Anderson later said that the orders he was given on July 3rd were contingent, that is, they were dependent on circumstances. He said, quote, I received orders to hold my division in readiness to move up and support, if it should become necessary. The key words there, obviously, being, if it should become necessary. And presumably, that decision would be Longstreet's. On July 3rd, if they were called upon, the positions of Anderson's five brigades dictated any role they would play supporting the charge. The brigades of Wright, Posey, and Mahone were on the left, so, if called upon, they would support Pettigrew and Trimble, while Wilcox and Lang, down on the right, would, if called upon, support Pickett. Neither Brigadier General Cadmus Wilcox nor Colonel David Lang was optimistic about the chances of this July 3rd attack. While participating in the big Confederate assault on Cemetery Ridge the previous day, both brigades had suffered heavy losses. David Lang couldn't help but wonder what they should do here on Friday if they were ordered forward once the main attack was repulsed, quote, as we both felt confident it would be. Cadmus Wilcox, who had lost over 570 men in yesterday's assault, said he, quote, would not again lead his men into such a death trap, end quote. In fact, Wilcox said that here on July 3rd, should an order to advance be imperative and not discretionary, then he would protest it. In any case, Wilcox, in the end, must have changed his mind about that, 
because when the call came to advance, there's no record that he protested it. That call to advance came after George Pickett sent back to Longstreet for help. You see, as his division approached the Emmitsburg Road, Pickett instructed his aide, Captain Robert Bright, to go back and find James Longstreet and say, quote, that the position against which he had been sent would be taken, but he could not hold it unless reinforcements were sent to him. Bright reached Longstreet about the same time that Colonel Arthur Fremantle, the British military observer, also found Old Pete. Fremantle had spent quite a bit of time scrambling about in search of what he called a quote-unquote commanding position from which to view the charge. He finally decided to seek out Longstreet, and while riding through the woods on Seminary Ridge in search of the general, Fremantle encountered wounded men drifting back from the attack. He noted in his diary that, quote, The further I got, the greater became the number of the wounded. At last I came to a perfect stream of them, flocking through the woods, in numbers as great as the crowd in Oxford Street in the middle of the day. Fremantle finally located Longstreet, who was sitting on a rail fence on the edge of the woods at the Confederate Center. Captain Bright had apparently just reached Longstreet and delivered Pickett's call for reinforcements to hold the lodgment that he expected his men would seize in the Federal line on Cemetery Ridge. From this vantage point, Fremantle had his first clear look at the panorama of the great charge, and he exclaimed to Longstreet, I wouldn't have missed this for anything. Old Pete was sitting there, to all appearances outwardly calm, and Fremantle reported that he gave his reply with a laugh, although it must have been a bitter laugh, saying, The devil you wouldn't. I would like to have missed it very much. We've been repulsed. Look there. Upon closer inspection, Fremantle could see Confederate troops, in his words, quote, slowly and sulkily returning towards us in small broken parties, end quote. At this stage in the fighting, these were likely remnants of Brockenbras or Joe Davis's wrecked brigades over on Pettigrew's part of the battlefield. But some reports indicate there were also some of Pickett's men whose courage had failed them, and that there was a steady trickle of these men, sometimes in quite sizable groups, making their way back towards Seminary Ridge. At any rate, Longstreet, who had never thought the attack could succeed, obviously thought that now what he was seeing were the first signs of the charge's failure. So he told Captain Bright to return to Pickett, quote, and tell him what you have heard me say to Colonel Fremantle. However, as Bright started off, Longstreet must have had second thoughts about leaving Pickett in a lurch with no help, because he called Bright back and, while pointing off to the south, said that Bright could also tell Pickett, quote, that Wilcox's brigade is in that peach orchard, and he can order him to his assistance. Bright returned to Pickett, and Pickett quickly sent off three messengers to Wilcox, since he was afraid that one or more of them might not survive the journey. The last of the three to reach Wilcox was Bright, and by that time Wilcox was exasperated by the attention, and when he saw Bright approaching, he threw up his hands and said, I know, I know, before Bright could even say a word. After their experience on July 2nd, 
no one in either Wilcox's or Lang's brigades felt confident about again advancing toward Cemetery Ridge, especially since the orders here on July 3rd simply instructed them to support Pickett and provided no further details. In fact, earlier Lang had only been given instructions to conform his movements to Wilcox's, but as it turned out, Wilcox didn't bother to send anyone to tell Lang that he had received orders to advance and support Pickett, so it was only when Lang saw Wilcox's brigade preparing to move that he got his own men ready to start off. Because of the smoke and chaos, neither Wilcox nor Lang realized that Pickett's division had veered sharply to the left as it approached Cemetery Ridge, and no one from Pickett came to serve as a guide. So when the two brigades started off, they simply advanced straight ahead. Wilcox was on the right, with the 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, and 14th Alabama, while Lang was on the left, with the 2nd, 5th, and 8th Florida. No one is sure of their combined strength on July 3rd, since both had suffered casualties the previous day, but it's estimated that they had maybe 1,600 men available here on the 3rd. As Porter Alexander watched the Alabamans and Floridians advance, he thought that by that time it made no sense to send them forward, and he remembered how, quote, with the keenest pity at the useless waste of life, I saw them advance. The men, as they passed, looked bewildered, as if they wondered what they were expected to do or why they were there. As I mentioned a moment ago, in their ill-conceived attempt to support Pickett's right, Wilcox and Lang, instead of following Kemper, instead headed straight ahead, straight for McGilvery's substantial federal gun line and the left of Stannard's Vermonters. When the Yankee gunners spotted the Alabamans and Floridians, they turned a terrible fire upon them, starting with the pieces up on Little Round Top, progressing through McGilvery's guns, and finally engaging batteries just come up from the artillery reserve, until within minutes, close to 60 Federal guns had opened on Wilcox and Lang. Lieutenant James Wentworth of the 5th Florida thought this was, quote, the hottest work I ever saw, my men falling all around me, with brains blown out, arms off, and wounded in every description. When the Confederates came within several hundred yards of their position, McGilvery's gunners switched to canister with devastating effect. Lieutenant Colonel Hillary Herbert, leading the 8th Alabama, later wrote, I could hear their missiles, some of them grape shot, crashing through the bones of my men like hailstones breaking through glass. Once across the Emmitsburg Road, the two brigades kept pushing forward until they reached the low ground drained by Plum Run. Lang's Floridians on the left kept going until they reached a fence along a skirt of woods. There they scattered and sought shelter. On their right, the Alabamans halted, also scurrying for cover. Wilcox spurred his horse to the rear to ask for artillery support from the Confederate batteries, but he learned that they were out of ammunition. Caught in what Lang described as a quote-unquote death trap, the rebels returned fire as best they could, but they held their position for only a few minutes. 
A federal soldier stated later that the bushes sheltering the enemy were quote-unquote twitching from the bullets fired by the Yankees in front of the Confederates. Then from the north, the 16th Vermont struck Lang's left flank. The Vermonters of Stannard's brigade had been gathering prisoners from their flank attack on Pickett's division when the 16th Vermont's Colonel Wheelock Vesey saw the advance of Wilcox's and Lang's brigades. Vesey ordered his men to fall in, quickly maneuvered them so they were facing south, and then charged toward Lang's vulnerable left flank. Of the 16th's attack, Vesey would write, quote, The movement was so sudden and rapid that the enemy could not change front to oppose us. Lang agreed, stating in his report that, quote, The men were by this time so badly scattered in the bushes and among the rocks that it was impossible to make any movement to meet or check the enemy's advance. Lang said that to stay put would have meant, quote, unquote, certain annihilation, so he ordered a retreat. The Floridians bolted for Seminary Ridge, followed by the Alabamans. Wilcox wrote that he ordered the withdrawal of his brigade, but Lieutenant Colonel Herbert claimed that Wilcox was still back with the artillery when the Federals struck. Caught in a bad spot, Herbert later said, quote, It became evident that nothing could save us but a retreat. Herbert and his fellow regimental commanders quickly conferred and agreed the brigade had to retreat. In fact, Wilcox had sent a courier forward with the order to withdraw, but the man had been killed en route. Most of the Alabamans did make it back to Seminary Ridge, but the retreat of the Floridians was a fiasco. Before Lang's order to withdraw could reach them all, the 16th Vermont was on them. The Vermonters scooped up prisoners by the dozen, mostly from the 2nd and 8th Florida. The 2nd Florida also lost its flag, which had been made by a group of women in Tallahassee and had a unique sunburst design sewn on the standard battle flag. It's likely that fewer than 450 men in the three Florida regiments had started the charge here on July 3rd, and afterward, one of Lang's officers wrote home that the brigade, quote, was small before the fight, it is very much smaller now. The butcher's bill for this ill-fated effort by Wilcox's and Lang's brigades was probably around 500 dead, wounded, and captured. One of those captured Confederates was Lieutenant Wentworth of the 5th Florida. While urging his men forward, he had been knocked out for a minute or two when an incoming shell exploded. When he regained consciousness and stood up, he was dazed, and still believing the attack was underway, waved his sword and shouted for his men to, quote, give them hell. Well, a not entirely amused Vermonter walked up to him and Wentworth said, told him, quote, they would give me hell if I did not surrender. Wilcox's Alabamans and Lang's Floridians are often forgotten participants in the Great Charge. Their advance started out too late to affect the outcome of the main assault and was carried out with no guidance from either Longstreet or A.P. Hill. The movement of the two brigades, in the estimation of one Alabaman, had been, quote, a desperate undertaking, almost a forlorn hope. Porter Alexander described the advance of the Alabamans and Floridians as, quote, 
at once both absurd and tragic, end quote. And it's hard to argue with that assessment. Had Wilcox and Lang started their advance as soon as Pickett's men marched past their position, they probably would have prevented the flank attack of Stannard's Vermonters against Kemper's Virginians. Whether that would have altered the outcome at the Copse of Trees seems unlikely, though, since there were ample Federal reserves on hand to prevent a true Confederate breakthrough at that spot. Far more additional Confederate troops moving in immediate support were needed if the attackers were to have had a real chance of breaking the Union line on Cemetery Ridge. However, in the end, when Wilcox and Lang started forward, not knowing where they were going, or really what they were supposed to be doing, that was all the help Pickett, Pettigrew, and Trimble were going to get. Next time, we'll turn our attention back to Pickett, Pettigrew, and Trimble and talk about the climax and repulse of the great charge. By the by, but now that we've covered all of the Confederate infantry that took part in the assault on Cemetery Ridge on July 3rd, if we accept the estimates of 7,300 combined for Pettigrew and Trimble, 5,000 for Pickett, and 1,600 for Wilcox and Lang, we achieve a grand total of 13,900 men available to make the attack. If we then make an arbitrary 10% deduction to allow for artillery casualties and heat prostration, we arrive at an estimated 12,500 men who, quote-unquote, made the charge. We mentioned that 12,500 figure previously, but that's how we get to it. So, yep, there you go. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Pickett's Charge, The Last Attack at Gettysburg by Earl J. Hess. Hess is one of our favorite Civil War authors anyway, and his book on Pickett's Charge certainly doesn't disappoint. We've reached for it time and again during our research for and writing of these episodes. It has been an indispensable resource and we highly recommend it. So that's Pickett's Charge, The Last Attack at Gettysburg by Earl J. Hess. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. We'd normally give a shout out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade and also thank everyone who has made donations recently but since it's been a while since we've released an episode, that list this time would be super long. So we'll just say thank you so much to everyone. We appreciate your support of the podcast and um, the encouragement that goes hand in hand with your support is priceless. And a big thank you to all of you for being so patient as you waited for us to record and release this episode. We hope it was worth the wait. Right. Um, this is by far the longest episode we've ever done. So, yes, as Tracy said, hopefully it was worth the wait. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you join us next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.